All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we ask you that you would bless our time together in your word. This is where your truth goes forth. We desire that you be glorified in it, that your the gospel of your son Jesus would be made known, and that the Spirit, your Holy Spirit, which he sent, will move among us to encourage us, to strengthen us, to purify us as a people, zealous for good deeds. Give us obedient hearts that we may be joyful to hear your word proclaimed. May it, may it do its work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we will continue our study today. Let's open our Bibles to the book of 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll get in part 2 of the same text that we have been exploring and that we began studying last week, uh, particularly verse 13. So 2 Peter chapter 3, our passage again will be verse 11 through 13 so we understand some of the context. Please follow along as I read. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in, con in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we're going to focus, as we did last Lord's Day, on that one verse, verse 13. This theme, this great theme, this great promise of a new heavens and new earth. And uh, got to confess, one of the major difficulties of, of writing a sermon based on this text is simply how much content is packed into this. And I know I probably say this often, but we haven't really studied in any real depth this theme of a new heavens and new earth. And so, first time around, we're going to pay closer attention to it. We're going to want to understand it well, in a very well-rounded way. And so we begin, we begin with simply the issue of the promise. And it kind of occurred to me, I started talking about the promise last Lord's Day, and I didn't actually really get there in any, in any real uh, significant way. But we talked about all the things that led up to the promise. And if, you were, and if you recall, we went through some of the verses. Remember, Peter is always drawing from the Old Testament to make a point. Why? Well, of course, the Old Testament is the Word of God, and it didn't stop being the Word of God since now we have a New Testament. And so Peter helps us to get a clear view of what's going on here, and we want to get a clear view because our understanding of, of all that comprises the new heavens and new earth is going to shape your understanding of God's mission in this world, even in the here and now, even in our own lives. And so there's a great benefit for us to take our time here. So I'm assuming we'll probably have a couple more weeks of this, but I trust it will be a benefit to you because as we, as we have related already, the new heavens and new earth is, is, is a great theme in Scripture. It's really the summing up of all the promises that God has given to us in Christ. This promise awaited of a new heaven and new earth 
really spans throughout Scripture. You could say it's probably the biggest promise that God has made. It is an all-encompassing promise. And if you read through Scripture carefully, you can see its, its development. And so we would be wise to focus carefully on this most important theme. And so without trying to uh, review in depth everything we went through last week, I think a couple things need to be noted. One is that this promise does not begin in the middle of Scripture. It begins actually near the very beginning of Scripture. And one thing we look to first and foremost is God's created order. The creation of the world, the creation of the entire cosmos, the creation of Adam and Eve in particular. And one thing that comes out, out of this is the order that God has set up a particular framework in which He relates to His creation and in which we relate to Him. And there are particular commands and responsibilities. There are things that we are, that, that, that Adam in particular was to fulfill. And then, of course, his offspring would also uh, join him in that work. And so, really quickly, because this theme is going to come up again in this message, but remember, in categorizing all of this, the old creation comes equipped with several things. They are the following. Remember, there is the king. Initially, God is king. He is creator. He rules over the entire universe. And of course, Adam becomes his vicegerent, rules under his watchful authority. Secondly is a priesthood. So you have a king, a kingdom, you have a priesthood. Adam was a priest, remember, who served in a garden temple where heaven met earth to cultivate the land and rule over the animals. Thirdly, we have a people. The first people, of course, were Adam and Eve. God's people. Of course, they would procreate. They would fill the earth and, and work together to subdue the earth. And ideally, they would raise up other faithful people, members of and servants of God's garden temple, so that, as also being cultivators of the earth, that the garden would be a worldwide phenomenon. Right? The, we find that the garden, as described even in Genesis, was, was sort of a local venue. We are not to assume that the Garden of Eden covered the whole earth. But Adam, his priest, would work to that end with his offspring. And of course, the purpose was to fill the earth and subdue it. To fill it with other godly people. Other people who loved and served the Lord as priests in His temple so that, now here's, here's the purpose of creation, so that the glory of God would fill the earth, so that everywhere you looked over the earth, you would find faithful image bearers who reflect the glory of the Lord. That is the end of creation. That is the purpose of creation, is the glory of God, but that He would be glorified through His image bearers. And then, of course, in all of this, we have the presence. Very important. There really is no, there will be no mission accomplished without the presence of God. Man needs God to fulfill his purpose in this world. And we find that God desires to meet and fellowship with man. And so this is what happened in this garden temple. So that the whole earth would become a garden and would be filled with the glory of the Lord. So bringing that full circle. So we understand what was supposed to take place. And we sort of ended at the fall. Of course, we find that Adam fell. He rebelled against the Lord. And he was alienated from this garden temple. He was cut off from the presence of God. And we, of course, reviewed last Lord's Day the disastrous effects that this had on every single office, on every single category 
that the Lord had instituted. Quite the cosmic tragedy. And so it is here, it is in this very important part of Genesis, and if you're not there, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to actually get to the promise (coughs) articulated today. This promise of a new heaven and new earth, even though heaven and earth are not mentioned specifically here in this promise. But one thing we have to understand very importantly, is that Adam's sin did not simply bring a curse upon man. It brought a curse on all of creation. On all creation. We see now here that the fact that Adam has died, he is beginning to decay. And even though he will live for 930 years, we see death taking its toll. Adam and Eve begin to die. We also see the curse upon the woman that in childbirth, pain will be greatly multiplied to women. Men will, be, men will till the earth and it will resist him. It will resist his work. It will bear thorns and thistles. But his work will still be blessed. It will still be productive. But it will be frustrating at the same time. So we find even in here, God's gracious provision that man in some form is able to carry out this mandate of cultivation, of productivity. But here's the most important part of all of this. What hope does Adam have? Does he have any hope of this curse being reversed? And we find out the answer is a resounding yes. So look at Genesis 3.15. It's the first time that the gospel is proclaimed. The Lord says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So in the midst of these curses that are, that are articulated, we find a promise. This right here, friends, is the promise of the new heavens and new earth. It begins here, not in, the, not in the middle of Scripture. It begins right here. And hopefully this is a verse that we're intimately familiar with. Because what this ends up being is a pronouncement of victory over the serpent. God says very clearly, in no uncertain terms, that the seed of the woman, that is a man, born of a woman, will crush the head of the serpent, while the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. So we find a, we find injury on, done by both parties. So while the serpent will cause injury to the heel of the promised seed, it will pale ultimately in comparison to the devastation that the seed of the woman will wreak upon the ser- so the serpent. His head will be crushed. Which is the more devastating blow? Obviously it is the head being crushed. That is, the heel is bruised. Well, that wound will recover. But for the head to be crushed, there is simply no coming back from that. And so right here we say, well, what, it, what does this have to do with the new heavens and new earth that Peter speaks so beautifully of? And we would say it has everything to do with that. Because the promise of the Messiah's victory over the serpent was not just one that procured salvation for all those who accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Remember, we talked about that many times But the gospel is more than just about going to heaven when you die. It's more than a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's more than coming to the garden alone where the dew is still fresh on the roses. Again, it's not about you. When it comes to the proclamation of the gospel, we are dealing with reversing the curse over all creation. And of course, gloriously so, that includes your personal salvation. 
That includes a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But the promise made to the man and his woman here represents a complete, comprehensive reversal of the curse. God is pronouncing here a cosmic victory over the enemy of mankind. That serpent of old who is the devil and Satan. That is, everything that the serpent did right here in tempting the woman, in tempting rebellion by extension to the man that sent this world into chaos and brought death upon Adam and all his progeny would be reversed. But we have to reckon first with the fact that all of creation is cursed. All of creation has been cursed because of the presence of sin. And so when God promises victory over the serpent, it means a reversal and undoing of everything that the serpent did, far as the curse is found. Now keep that in mind because there will be more on this later. There will be more on this later. That is to say, that is why the gospel is much more than just the salvation of individual souls. The very work of the gospel does not only that, but it reverses the curse everywhere where it is found and it restores and exalts creation as we know it. So when we understand what what the newness uh, is of the new heavens and new earth, it is the exaltation of creation as we know it. The oldness and all that represented its rebellion against God will be burned away. And we do this through proclaiming the gospel. And so what the promise of the new heaven and new earth ultimately means is the fulfillment of God's original intention for creation. So don't miss that part. This is very important to understanding this whole teaching on the new heavens and new earth. Because in this whole scheme of creation, God's intention was one in which God would rule over man, two, God would rule with man, and thirdly, that this rule would come to encompass all of creation. Not just part of it, but all of it. So that all of the world would be filled with faithful image bearers who enjoy sweet fellowship with God through worshiping with Him and enjoying His presence. That is what the Gospel is restoring. That is what the Gospel is accomplishing even now. So everything that was thrown away at the fall, everything that was forfeit, even the very presence of God Himself is restored. Everything corrupted will be cleansed. Everything lost will be given back. Everything broken will be put back together. Everything wrong will be made right through the work of Christ. That's the promise that we find in Genesis 3.15. And so what's happened? What happened in Genesis 3 when man sinned? One of the most significant things other than the promise is that the man and his wife were kicked out of the garden. They were alienated from the presence of God. And of course, there was a sword. The sword of Eden was placed there to prevent man from entering the garden, taking the fruit from the tree of life, and living forever in a cursed state. That's what the Lord and His grace was preventing. And so even though man would die, there was that promise of being raised again, of being restored, of being exalted. And of course, I think most gloriously, being united 
in fellowship with His God once again. And so that promise was made and that promise was kept and it was preserved. Now I think we see this very clearly and this is kind of why we're taking a biblical theology of a new heavens and new earth because I want to demonstrate very clearly that, that God's intentions are true and they are consistent. I'm not standing up here making things up. But the fact is that we have underscored many times is that God desires to be with man. Even though man is now alienated, God in His goodness and His grace desires to be with man. We find this enumerated very clearly. Not only does God continue to bless and preserve man, He even tells man that He is with him. Now listen to this in Genesis chapter 26. And this is already after Isaac has been born. The Lord has revealed Himself to Abraham. He's made that promise to bless him. So we see that very clearly. That He would make of Abraham a great people. Right? The beginning really of the nation of Israel through which the promised seed would come. There it is once again. The promise. How are we going to have a new heaven and new earth? It's going to come through the promised seed. So that promised seed Isaac, at least in starting form, has been fulfilled. Isaac is here. Now listen to what the Lord says. In Genesis 26, we read, So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Listen to this. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So rather than curses, there is a promise of blessing. So we're viewing this in Genesis in seed form, and yet God is quick to reiterate them. He is quick to reinforce them. He is quick to make them known to those whom He chooses. He first came to Abraham, revealed Himself to Abraham, and now we see this repeated to Isaac. This is all for the purpose of God dwelling with man. Don't miss that theme throughout the whole of Scripture. I will be with you. Very significant. Very significant. And then, of course, Israel grows. In Exodus 3.12, we read this, and he's talking to Moses. The Lord says this, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship God at this mountain. So we want to establish this. Right. Foundationally, God says, and it is impossible for God to lie, He says He will be with His people. And He repeats that promise to Moses. He is with Him. And even after they cross the Red Sea and they come into, they come into Canaan, Joshua is called. In Deuteronomy, even before the conquest, Deuteronomy 31, we read this. Here's what the Lord says, Be strong and courageous, for I shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. Right. Moses, Moses has passed away, or about to be. So where do these promises go? Well, that hasn't changed about God. He is still with His people. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. Repeated again and again and again. Then we find that the, the kingdom of Israel has been established. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed at all. Listen to this. In 1 Kings 11.38, we read this. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you 
and walk in my ways to do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did. Then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. So you, we still find that abiding presence of the Lord. But He desires to be with His people. There's nothing begrudgingly or begrudging about it. Then we go into the era of the prophets. It's important to establish continuity here. Isaiah 14, or Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Talking to Israel. Even in the midst of several judgment prophecies to his people, I will be with you. I will not forsake you. See, it's not God as the one who is struggling to keep the covenant, right? It is Israel. But God remains faithful. And in the midst of His presence, we also find the, the, the setting up of these various offices, these various um, positions that man is to fulfill, but he is to carry out. God continues to be their king, their ruler. And even as early as Exodus, we see this in the context of the priesthood. Right? We see priests now. We know that Adam failed in his priestly duties. But then even as God calls Israel, He calls them to be a kingdom of priests, and He will be with them. Now listen to Exodus 29, 45-46. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So you see what's going on here, right? There's a king, there's a priest, there's a people, there's a presence. All of these things. There is a purpose to be a light to the Gentiles so that they will be a witness to the glory and grace of the true and living God. We see His presence come to bear at the tabernacle. Now here we go. Here's this, here's this temple motif again. right? Lost at the garden. And now God is expressing His desires to dwell with man once again where heaven meets earth. Exodus 40, 34. And this is really the culmination of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. He's there with them. What a... Amazing sight that must have been. In Leviticus 26.11, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. Use this text from Leviticus, because typically we look to Leviticus and think, law, law, punishment, wrath, doom, judgment upon lawbreakers. And yet, here are gracious provisions within the law itself. He's going to dwell among His people, and His soul will not reject them. God will be faithful. God will preserve His people. He will be with them. And we understand that within this framework, there were commands, right? There were responsibilities. There was a purpose for Israel to fulfill. They were to call to be faithful to their God. In Numbers 35, 34, once again being instructed, he says this, you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, right? God's holy presence. So do not treat it as an unholy thing. For I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. 
Remember, the entire encampment was, was built up around the tabernacle. Okay, now we go to the next motif. We've gone from, we've gone from the garden temple, we've gone to the tabernacle. There's probably some other details in between here. But then we come to the kingdom of Israel and the building of the temple. In 1 Kings 6.13, we read this, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Now listen to this, because a similar thing happens. Note the patterns here. When the temple is finally completed under the reign of Solomon, the temple is then filled. So in the same way that the glory cloud descended on, upon the tabernacle in, 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 the, in Exodus, so it comes now upon Mount Zion. It happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. See, there's something about the Lord that we miss, something so plain. It's that He wants to be with people. He wants to fellowship and commune with His image bearers. And as much as, as, much as His people keep Biting the dust, it appears. He still desires to be with them and to purify and gather a people for Himself. And we think, man, no matter how bad it got with Israel, no matter how much they sinned, did the Lord forget His promises to them. Because remember, all of this, all of this is geared toward the creation of a new heavens and new earth, and restoring what was lost. This is the meta-narrative. This is the big storyline of Scripture. So even when Israel faces exile, we read in Ezekiel 37. Now listen to this, kind of a big passage. But this is speaking of where all these promises are leading. It's leading to Christ. My servant David will be king over them. Well, David has already died, so he must be talking about a different David, the true David. And they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince. There's the king again. Promise of the king, of a ruler. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them. And look, look at this. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Now pause there. What is this sanctuary going to be? Well, you're looking at it. It's the church. This is pointing to new covenant promises. And they will be fulfilled in the, in the union of Jew and Gentile. And God will set His sanctuary. We will be that sanctuary in their midst forever. And this is very significant because it is, and I believe it is Ezekiel is the prophet who testified of the departing of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory that dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And then it eventually departed the temple. Sat over a mountain for a while and then went away altogether. And then, of course, Judgment came through Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army. And so this is a huge promise. This is profound to hear that even though Israel faces judgment, the Lord will come and dwell with them in such a way to where His sanctuary will never depart. 
And so it goes on to say, verse 27 of this passage, my dwelling place also will be among with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That same theme. And they're all mentioned together quite often. Verse 28, and the nations, so here's the inclusion of the Gentiles, and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. And this is exactly what happened once the gospel was proclaimed. It began in Jerusalem. There was an initial, there was an initial uh, faith expressed from the Jews. And then, of course, the Gentiles came flooding in. That promise was fulfilled at Pentecost and continues today as men turn their hearts to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The same thing is looked forward to in Zechariah 2. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. This is verses 10 through 12, by the way. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst. There's the presence again, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. But I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Of course, these are new covenant promises that are continually being fulfilled as God adds to his number people who are being saved. This is the rest, this is a promise of the restoration of what was lost in the Garden of Eden by Adam and even in a, to a greater extent what was, what was forfeit by Israel when they, apost, when, they, when they apostatized from the Lord. All of these things are being not only restored, but their areas being enlarged. We're no longer dealing with a small garden temple. We're dealing with a temple now that fills the earth and includes Jews and Gentiles and breaks down that wall of hostility. See, in the midst of all this, this desire of God to be present with His people, we still find that He withdraws His presence. We've already talked about His withdrawing His presence from Israel. We also see it on a, like a microcosm event from Samson. Remember Samson? When his hair was cut, it says he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. So we find that he does that. But ultimately, it has not eclipsed his desire to be with his people. So all those promises from Genesis 3.15 to Zechariah 2 and then some. It's, I mean, that's what I'm saying. This is this is a teaching that is somewhat overwhelming because it, there's so much content regarding this promise of God coming to dwell with His people, to be their king, that we would be His priests, that we would obey His commands and, and fulfill this mandate to subdue the earth and to, and to reflect His goodness and His reign and to rule and reign with Him. And so all these promises point ultimately to Christ. We talked about the promised seed. So Israel ends up being the nation that preserves this seed. right? And then, Christ comes. Most significant event of all. John 1.14, where we see that the Word becomes flesh and dwells, tabernacles among us. So he said, what, what's significant about this? It's what Christ, what Christ accomplished. Now, a ways back we said more on this later, right? How would how do we know that the curse would be reversed? Well, this is where we find the curse reversed. We know that Jesus preached the gospel 
We know that He was the sinless Son of God. We know that He accomplished all that the Father sent Him to do. We know that He died for sinners. We know that He rose again. And we know that He ascended to the right hand of the Father. But listen to this. 1 John 3.8 The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. So the devil tempting the woman and, and, and leading the man into rebellion was a sin. He was a murderer, even Jesus says. But, it, but listen to what John says. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. To destroy the works of the devil. Now, Adam is called a son of God. He fell prey to the works of the devil. But Jesus, the faithful, incarnate, God incarnate, Son of God, appeared for this purpose. To destroy the works of the devil. So we're not isolated here to one work. The devil performed many works of destruction in this world. He continues to prowl around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But why did Jesus appear? To destroy the works of the devil. Yes, He came to save sinners, but on a grander scale, He came to destroy the works which brought the curse. Same thing, Hebrews 2.14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. I am troubled by even this modern assertion that somehow the devil is running around this world unrestrained, calling all of the shots. Very clearly here, Jesus, it is said that Jesus renders powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Even Jesus, before going to the cross, pronounces judgment upon the devil. He says in the Gospel of John, the ruler of this world has been judged. The ruler of this world has been cast out. And sometimes we pretend that nothing was really accomplished concerning the devastating works of the devil at the cross. And yet very clearly from Scripture, we understand that we have every reason to believe that then and even now, the works of the devil are being undone as the Gospel is preached. And it's... Not that God even needs our help. But again, restoring the original intention of creation. We are, as His ambassadors, proclaiming the Lordship of Christ so that men will trust in Him, so they, that they will be released from the power of the devil, from His dominion, and come under the dominion of Christ. So you see how that works. Our original mandate from creation is now even the mandate itself is exalted. Right? Proclaiming Christ as Lord. Now we see this climactic event in Revelation 21. Very important text. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. We talked about this last week. But also, He will dwell among them and they shall be His people and God Himself will be among them. So this is the end of the Bible. It's one of those, the Bible's one of those books where you want to read the end first. Because everything is put back together. And yet, in a, in a way that can, so where it, it's, a, it's a blessing that can never be forfeited, right? We are not, I want to, I want to stress this. 
we're not merely being returned to Eden. The problem with Eden is that it could be lost. We are returning to an Eden that can never be forfeit. We are returning to an exalted Eden. An exalted tabernacle. An exalted temple. Where Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we see this proclaimed. It's been proclaimed for the last 2,000 years. Now we want to go back. Again, several themes to consider. But one we don't want to miss is God coming down. right? God descending and being with His people. So it happened at the, at, the, at the tabernacle. It happened at the temple. And now we see it happening again. Acts 2.2 Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. So you see how this is... There's, so in, in one sense, the same thing is happening. The presence of God is coming upon His people. But rather than being a fire in the midst of them, it would be a fire within them. God once again is present with His people in the Holy Spirit, empowering us to preach the Gospel. And then from then on, we see, I love this example, Peter, this naive foot-and-mouth disease Peter, proclaims with power the Gospel. In Acts 2.24, he says this, but God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter understood that Jesus came not only to save sinners, but to put an end to the very curse itself. To put an end to the agony of death is to have victory over the curse. And of course, in Him, we all have that victory. Why? Because it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. And in Christ, the same impossibility exists. It is impossible for us to be held ultimately in death's power. So there is the promise restored. There is the promise exalted. Whereas Adam could die in Christ, one with himself as we sing, we cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. So we see the, the, that work of God, right? To dwell with His people, to restore and exalt what was lost, and to be with His people, and to bless them, and to show His goodness to them, so that His people will worship and glorify Him, so that all the world will be filled with the glory and knowledge of the Lord. So the, what we see here culminated, it culminated in Revelation chapter 21 is all of those things coming to fruition is that creation itself is fulfilling its original purpose. So, draw your hearts once again to those categories that we brought up. Right? Because now those two have been restored, but they have been restored in Christ. God is not only King. We see now that God rules specifically through His Son, that Christ is now King of kings and Lord of lords. Right? We read in Psalm 2, that God has installed His King on the holy mountain, and now Christ is putting all His enemies under His feet. 
we live under His gracious and sovereign rule and we proclaim His rule to the nations so that all nations will worship Him and honor Him as Lord and King. So now, right now, where Adam failed, right? Adam was to rule with God and now we see Christ ruling as our Lord, as our God, as the true man. The new priest. We have this on a couple, on a couple accounts. On one hand, we are now a kingdom of priests, right? First Peter 2 talks about it. That we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people, right? For God's own possession. So on that account, there is a priesthood, a new priesthood, not, not a Levitical priesthood, but a priesthood in Christ. We read in Hebrews 7.17 that Christ is the great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was a man with, you know, referenced in Genesis. Abraham came face to face with him, gave him a tithe of all he had, but it is noted of Melchizedek that he was the king of Salem, right? The king of peace, the king of righteousness. That's what his name means. He was a, he was one whose days saw no beginning, no end. So he becomes a type of Christ. And now Christ is that great high priest who lives ever to make intercession for us. Man has always needed a priest, right? He has always needed a representative before God. And now we have God's most favored Son as our priest. Not only as our King, but as our priest. And so with that, we also have a people. Right now we have a new people. Here's how the new heavens and new earth comes to bear. There is a new people. And of course, as we, as we said briefly last Lord's Day, this starts with Christ. Right? He is, as Colossians describes Him, the firstborn from the dead. He is preeminent over the dead. What, is, what does that mean? That means that Jesus is the beginning of the new humanity because He is the first person who conquered death. He is the first person who died and rose never to die again. See, even Elijah and Enoch can't claim that. They were simply taken up. But Jesus tasted death for every man and then conquered death. Now He stands as our great high priest, the great representative of this new humanity. And now He is the author of the new creation. That's why in the book of Revelation, He says, Behold, I make all things new. See, it's through the, the, the expression of Christ's power that we are going to see a new heavens and new earth. But in that new heavens and new earth, there will be a new people populating it. But there is only a new people if there is a new man. And that is Christ. And so we become the church, the assembly, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, the people for God's own possession. Ephesians 2, 14-15 says this, For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So the new, through the new man's work, through the true man's work, the church itself is a new man. That is why we are called the body of Christ. We are united with Him, Jew and Gentile, as one new man. See, that is, guys, sometimes this, this is lost on us. 
This is why we talk endlessly about the importance of the Lord's Day and coming together as the body of Christ. Because it is here that that one new man is put on display, and the only time really during the week that, that, that we come and express our new manness, the new humanity that we enjoy, to worship in spirit and in truth. And it kills me that we continue to think of this as something optional. But it's really not that important. That we have so many Christians, that so-called Christians, who continually dismember themselves. Okay? Now, if you go home, take a pair of scissors, and you cut off your finger, don't do that, please. But what's going to happen? What's going to happen if you do nothing? If you don't reattach your finger? Your finger is going to rot. Right? Your finger is going to die. Because it's cut off from the rest of the body. Listen to me. It is no different for any self-professing Christian. If you dismember yourself from the body of Christ, you're going to die. You're going to wither and die. This is why when we, when we view this throughout the entire Scripture and see the development of God's people, right? There's always been, God has always had for Himself a people. But the idea of a people is the assembly, the church, the ecclesia. We are called to assemble to one another. So we are not to relegate the corporate gathering into some optional second-class category. No, it is, it is one of the very points and purposes of the new creation so that we can gather in light of that newness that Christ has begun and that the Spirit is cultivating continually. And the question looming is, again, can we really forsake the assembly again and again and continue to call ourselves Christians and continue to call ourselves the body of Christ. Don't take my word for it. Search the Scriptures and see what it actually says regarding these things. But it is very hard to exaggerate the joy and the blessings of coming together. Because that is, at least on a local level, the most profound expression of God's new people. That we are demonstrating peace. The peace that God has given us. So why continue to build walls made of sand? Right? Why continue to put barriers in the way? Be here and worship with the rest of the new humanity. And finally, we find that purpose. What was man's original purpose? To glorify God. Still is, but to glorify him as his people, right? So that the name of the Lord would be proclaimed in all the earth, so that the glory of the Lord would fulfill, would fill all the earth to make God's name great. And we find this purpose very clearly stated in 1 Peter 2. We've talked about being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So we find uh, the, the fact that we are His people, we're, his, we're, we're a priesthood, right? God is our King. Christ is our King. We know all these things, but listen to this. Here's our purpose. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So you can ask yourself, why am I a Christian? What is the purpose of being in Christ? That is a good question. The question today coming up is the why. Why do we come together? Why do I believe the Gospel? Why should I read my Bible? Why pray? Why any of these things? 
But it all finds itself in this purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So there's a reminder there of what God has done for you. Never forget in your Christian activities, no matter where that may be, in every cultural endeavor, you remember that you are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, for it is He, it is God who has brought you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And then Peter goes on to say, verse 10, for once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we can fulfill our purpose in light of that, knowing that we have received mercy, that we were without resource, right, without hope, without God in the world. And God came down. God came down in the person of Jesus Christ so that all who believe in Him would become His people, would receive forgiveness of sin, would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, would, would be united with Christ in His life and love and all the joys that come with that. And that we would see that He would meet all of our needs and not withhold from us any good thing that we require. So now we can fulfill our purpose. Our purpose is proclaiming the excell- His excellencies. See, it's, a glorif- it's, it's Adam's purpose glorified. Right? Now we, in Christ, proclaim Christ so that Christ's dominion would expand to the ends of the earth. Right? We preach Christ, the true man, the last Adam, so that all will come and worship and adore Him. And this, of course, is found in the Great Commission. Right? Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth, right, has been given to me. Therefore, right, we are to go to disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them. Here's our purpose, and this purpose never expires. Teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded us, knowing that He is with us forever. And of course, the presence. Right? We forsake now. We forsake the construction of our own idolatrous temples. And now we are the temple of the living God. And even in the new heaven and new earth, when everything has reached its full consummation, it is God and His Son who are the temple. There are no need for any other temples. For God Himself is that temple. And He is with us. He is our God. We are His people. And we find this now that, as Joel 2 tells us, God has poured His Spirit out upon all mankind, right? Jew and Gentile, and we enjoy His presence. Listen to Ephesians 2, 21-22. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple. Note that. Growing. Expanding. Growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So you see, all these promises have come to bear. They have all come full circle. They have all been fulfilled. God is faithful to His promises. We are living them right now. These promises He made to the prophets, right? I will, you will be my people. I will be your God. And that is, that is the reality we live in right now, friends. He is our God. We are His people. Listen to Ezekiel 37 in this regard. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they will be my people, and I will be their God. Right? See, that's the promise fulfilled. And it's amazing, right? I mean, 
Human promises seem so flippant, do they not? I promise this. I promise that. Someone says something to us. Do we pro- do you promise? Will you keep your word? And usually we expect these promises to be fulfilled within the next 24 hours or so. What is so mind-blowing about this promise of God specifically is it is a promise that has spanned roughly 6,000 years, maybe more. This is a thousand-year promise coming to fruition even in the here and now. So I bring that up to say that sometimes God's providence throughout history is more miraculous than miracles. We read, you know, healing the blind, right? Bringing sight to the blind, right? The lame walk, the dumb speak, right? That's a miracle. And we're like, praise the Lord, and we should. But how much more should our praise be to see that throughout history, in spite of all opposition, in spite of all the naysayers, in spite of all the counterfeits, in spite of all the lies and deception from the devil, that God still, and mind you, speaking through the mouthpieces of fallen men, has somehow managed to fulfill His promises and keep them intact. Ultimately doing so through His perfect Son. But for no other reason, we reflect on God's promises and how they've been revealed in Christ and even proclaimed through His church that we would, that we would call to mind in our very, in our very hearts and our, in our, in our very souls that God is a God worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our affection. He is worthy of our, of our thoughts, of our speech. He is worthy to be, He is worthy to find satisfaction in. It's amazing of all the other things we seek in life that, that compete for our attention and our satisfaction. And yet here we are seeing God be true to His Word. And so, again, in, in closing, God is faithful to expand upon His original promise in the garden. I would say it's a temptation in our own day. We bring them up often. All the calamity we see in society. All the ungodliness. right? All of the the day-to-day horrors we bear witness to. All the things that are tempting our kids away from the Lord. I I don't know about you, but it seems daily we're seeing reports about Kids being taken to see drag queens, you know, being exposed to every perversion under the sun at a very young age. I mean, even Toy Story's been hijacked through the movie Lightyear. I mean, goodness, like what, what is new? And we can go on and on. But I don't want us to, to focus on all of the ungodly things that are happening and forfeit the great joy of seeing the, the, the cultivation of the new heavens and new earth and how God involves His people now to join Him in that endeavor. The new heavens and new earth is expanded by the proclamation of the Gospel. And if we are so disheartened by the presence of sin and rebellion so that we throw in the towel and sit on the bench, then what, what use are we? What use are we if we think it's a hopeless situation? But let me tell you that when, where God's promises are kept, it is never a hopeless situation. Even Peter says he has raised us up to a living hope. Our hope is a living thing. And in light of, and if we have that hope, as Peter says, bringing it back to 2 Peter, we are looking for a new heaven and new earth. Yes, we look for it 
now in the present as God's kingdom, the kingdom of His Son, continues to gain ground. And so, as we continue in this study, probably go on next week or two, I want to kind of flush out more of, the, more of the details of the new heavens and new earth. But for now, I just want you to bear witness to this great theme of Scripture. Rejoice in it. Let it, let it grip your heart and ask the Lord how He can use you, how He has gifted you to proclaim the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so let, us, let that be our prayer together as we close. Bow our heads. Father, again, we come to You. We thank You for Your love and, and faithfulness to us. We thank You, Lord, as we have been considering this morning. We thank You for Your presence. Lord, but all this has come full circle. That as Your new covenant people, You dwell with us, and we are dwelling in Your presence in a way that can never be forfeit. We dwell with You forever. And with great confidence, we can say it is Your purpose in Your creation that all the world would be the dwelling place of God. And and so much even today, in, in, in light of all we've said, there's so much we have not said, so much we have not considered. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us joy knowing that you are at work, knowing that there, is, that there is good in this world, and the good in this world is knowing that we serve a faithful God, knowing that your Son reigns, and knowing that your presence is with us. Where you dwell, Lord, that is a good thing. And I pray we would be faithful to defend that, faithful to proclaim it. Lord, may we be looking, as Peter reminds us, looking forward to a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells and where unrighteousness is cast out. Lord, we can't do it without your Spirit. We know that you want us involved, and we see that, Lord, as being your priests, serving in your temple, knowing that we are your people and that we have a definitive purpose to make the name of Christ known. And so, Lord, help us to rejoice in that and uh, help us to spur one another on. We know that in some way the days are evil. We know that there are many ungodly things happening. But help us not to lose heart. Help us not be to, help us not to be discouraged, but to press on, to persevere, to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, knowing that in due time, even in this life, you will bring a harvest. So increase our faith and uh, help us to love you because you first loved us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.